I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the, the Flight, Flight Safety, Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host, John, has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and go team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, hello, John. Another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. I'm uh, back home in uh, beautiful Colorado. It happened to be uh, 60 plus degrees and the snow on the mountains looks awesome. And I see you finally made it back to Boston. So what's the weather like in Boston? It's a little chilly. Yeah, that's what I like to hear. Fortunately for me, I left Miami about a week ago and I went to Salt Lake City. So I got preconditioned before I came home. Yeah, well, you had to thicken up that blood. So it's good for you. Yeah. The only problem is now all those little drinks with umbrellas that, you know, were kind of slushy in, uh, in Miami are now frozen where you are. So <laughs> they don't make, they don't make good mojitos up here. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, you're going to have to uh, start working on the recipe in your spare time. I just go to Florida and have somebody else make it for me. <laughs> well, I like that idea even better. So well, it's always good to see you. And again, this another episode of Flight Safety Detective sponsored by both PAMA and Abemco Insurance. Yes. And if you're looking for insurance, please contact Abemco, get a quote, a price. And if you mention Flight Safety Detectives, you can earn yourself a 5% discount, which is not too shabby for just mentioning that you listen to the program. That's right. And given the fact that uh, we are now coming into, well, at least we got springtime in the Rockies. So I know this weekend here is supposed to be close to 70. There are going to be a lot of people flying. So now is the time to uh, to dust off uh, the airplane, dust off your own wings and get your insurance and everything else in order so that the flying season can begin safely. So We, you and I have had an opportunity. We chat periodically when we aren't doing the show. And the NTSB came out with an update at the time of the recording of this show with regard to the 777 and the engine issue that occurred back in February with the flight out of Denver heading to Honolulu. So you and I are going to, of course, talk about that. But during my travels, and I think during your travels, uh, we both saw a story about a Frontier Airline A320 Airbus that had supposedly been de-iced. And, of course, someone took a picture of it and alerted a flight attendant to the fact that they didn't think everything was right with the de-icing. The flight attendant, of course, confirmed that. 
she took the message to the crew just before they were getting on the runway. And for those of you who are listening who haven't seen the picture, you definitely you can go to our website. It'll be posted on uh, Flight Safety Detectives, or you can run it down through Ad Herald or any of the other social media sites. But literally, I mean, they were talking, you know, not just a little bit of snow, but inches of snow on the airplane. And then somebody had squirted green stuff all over the top of it, calling it de-icing fluid. It looked more like the shamrock shake from McDonald's somebody had sprayed all over this wing and called it good. And, of course, the uh, the airplane crew assumed that the de-icing had been done properly, taxied out, and were getting ready to take off when all the alarm bells went off with the flight attendant running up to tell the crew about it. And of course, you know, some of the social media sites and some of the stories that were written talk about the flight attendant saving the flight, which is great. I'm very happy. We have some very astute passengers out there these days flying airplanes. And of course, the flight attendants, once they were aware, it became obvious that there was a a serious issue. The question I have for you, John, is you worked for an airline that was flying in winter conditions all the time. You're out there as a maintenance guy. You have to know about de-icing and everything else. These guys are supposed to be trained. They're supposed to be signed off. They're supposed to understand that when you shoot an airplane with de-icing fluid, you're not just spraying it on top of the stuff and thinking it's going to melt it off, like throwing salt on the driveway. I mean, you're supposed to take the stuff completely off the uh, the aircraft. And we have seen a number of accidents. You've investigated them. I've investigated it. U.S. Air 405 at LaGuardia, Continental 1713 out here in Denver. Just a little bit of contamination. The grid of fine sandpaper can just have an immense effect on aircraft performance. And I just don't understand how stuff like this continues to happen. Uh, it's part of the contracting out de-icing. I mean, I, I've de-iced thousands, multiple thousand of airplanes in my career. And years ago, they moved, they being the companies, almost all of them in this country, moved that function to not maintenance people, but to other people. And depending upon your location, the amount of snow you get at that location, the turnover of, of personnel in the facility that you use, because it's not an everyday event, sometimes they hire other people. And, you know, ironically, I know of one operation that hired retired or moonlighting firemen. They did an excellent job because they they understood how to handle the hoses and, and get good flow out of the material. But most of the time, you're getting young kids who will go up in the bucket and do the, do the de-icing. In fact, I had a presentation one time that I was giving for other issues, and the subject of de-icing came up and this crew was the de-icing crew. And they told me, well, the only reason why you're taking, you're clearing it off is because of the weight. So we don't take it all off. They would, you know, if it doesn't look like it's going to weigh that much, you leave patches on the airplane, whatever. And I, I stopped what I was doing, and we did a, a whole session on why we de-ice airplanes. And I talked about the leading edge. These guys had no clue about aerodynamics or anything. The training was the training that they were given was totally horrible. But that was one small group of people, and I'm sure there's many, many out there that have absolutely no clue on why they're de-icing, what's the purpose of it, 
and what they have to do. You can't leave that snow, especially heavy, wet snow, on the airplanes because also you could get out on the end of the runway and the temperature go down, you know, it might be one degree above, and then all of a sudden you're waiting in line for half an hour and the temperature goes down, and now that soft, mushy snow is no longer soft and mushy. Yeah, well, and over the years, and, and it started what really brought it to light, of course, even though we've had issues prior to it, but was Palm 90, that is Air Florida in Washington. They didn't get the aircraft de-iced. They tried to tuck in behind a, a 727 that was waiting in line to take off, thinking, well, the hot exhaust will melt the snow. It'll slough off during the roll, and it never did. And then, of course, they had engine inlet snow which caused some false engine readings and they thought they were producing more power than they actually were and these things have all i mean we've addressed it over and over and over and over and over again for all of these years and then to see that again just recently it's just nuts and then of course people don't understand that the icing fluid you hear it being sprayed on the aircraft they look out and it looks like this heavy, wet goo. I just, you know, because of your experience, why don't you just give a Reader's Digest version of the de-icing fluid, the different types or the type four, which is predominantly used, and what these holdover times mean. Okay, so, so the first thing about you have to understand about the icing fluid, it's expensive. And so you, they water it down, essentially. And a 50-50 mix will, will bring you down pretty low on the temperature chart so that you can use it most of the time. But in some cities, like Chicago and Boston, you might have to use a 70-30 mix, a little, a little pure. Now, the icing fluid, the basic de-icing fluid, is like antifreeze that you put in your car. And it's meant just to spray off, and that's all it does. It cleans the airplane off. The problem is that after you de-ice it, if it's snowing, the snow will build up again. So after a number of accidents, and notably the, uh, well, we both, you and I, worked on 405 in LaGuardia, and that was one of the triggers that drove some improvements in the business. They developed additional formulas for the de-icing fluid. And typically today we're using type 4, but type four is very expensive. So normally what you'll find them doing today, at least the big airlines, will clean the airplanes off using basic de-icing fluid and then coat the airplane with type four, which is much thicker. And it just sort of hangs on the airplane, coats the skin of the airplane. And if you have additional snow falling after you've de-iced the airplane, it melts it. It doesn't stick to the airplane. It may stick on top of the de-icing fluid, but it doesn't penetrate and stick to the wing. And the, and the metal wing getting cold will turn that slushy snow into ice sticking to the airplane, and that's a no-no. So that during the takeoff roll or whatever, as soon as the aerodynamic flow happens, that stuff starts to slough off as speed increases. Right. That'll blow off. And nothing, it won't stick to the airplane, and nothing will stick to it on any aluminum or metal that it's covered or fiberglass. It has two functions at that point. Again, it's very expensive. You have to apply it properly. And what I have in my experience from years ago with the charters companies that I've, I, ha, I used to de-ice on the, for a de-icing company. 
separate from my airline employment. And what we find is because it's so expensive, they try to save money. And I have seen many flights from the airlines. I can remember one from another major airline that they spent, because it was an ice storm, they spent $50,000 de-icing the airplane. Wow. Right. There was, wow. Right. There was no hangar available. So they weren't going to make money on the next few flights with that airplane because of that. So when you get down into the, the smaller carriers, and that could be a make or break, not only for one trip, that could be a make or break for the whole day. And you bring up a good point, John, because I, I worked for Dick Ebersol, who used to be the president of NBC Sports, when his son, his youngest son, was killed in an airplane crash out here in Montrose, Colorado. And you bring up a good point about a charter, especially those charter companies that are operating on a shoestring. The margins are very small. These guys, they had stopped in Montrose on their way back to South Bend, Indiana to drop off his older son back at school and stopping in Montrose to drop his wife off. It was snowing. And rather than de-ice the airplane, which the board, I don't think, really ever pursued it to the extent it should have been pursued, but it was obvious that it was money-based. They didn't shoot the airplane. They uh, got gas. They put everybody back on. They taxied out, tried to take off, crashed at the end of the runway, and Mr. Ebersol's youngest son was killed. And when you think about what the margin was that these guys were going to make on this charter and, you know, the cost of shooting an airplane ranges depending on where you go and how much you're using. But, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred bucks to shoot the airplane, you know, all of a sudden you're thinking, well, that's coming right off the bottom line and I'm not going to make much money on this. And like you said, in some cases you can go negative with it. And next thing you know, is that an influencing decision in the whole process for de-icing the aircraft? you got to add a few more things to it. Before I go any further, you said shooting the airplane twice. For, the, for our, our listeners who don't understand some of the airport slang, shooting the airplane, it just means you're coating it with de-icing fluid. You're spraying it out of a hose. And it looks like a gun. The nozzle that you hold in your hand looks like a gun. So that's, that's how it uh, originated. Thank you, John. That's, I knew I had you on this show for a reason. <laughs> I have actually been at the airport when a cargo airplane was taking off. The flight crew, who had very little experience after after the accident happened, this was involved in an accident, was determined that the captain had very little experience flying in winter weather, did not want to be shot. And I looked at that airplane and I went over to the, the ground handler, the supervisor, and said, that airplane needs to be de-iced. You don't send that thing out. And he said the captain refused to be de-iced, and they sent it out. And it crashed about 25 miles at the most from Boston. He got up into what we call ground effects. So the airplane got up up to 100 feet or so, and he couldn't do anything. He had not enough altitude to turn. He was trying to turn to come back, but he on the runway he took off from, he's got all the high-rises around Boston. So he was heading north to try to get him a place to 
to make a turn, and as you head north out of Boston, the ground comes up, and he lost it and crashed it, and they all perished. And it was a, a crew that was based in the Caribbean. They just didn't have the experience and didn't want to spend the money. It was snowing hard. There was a lot of snow on the airplane. It wasn't sticking, but there was a lot of snow on the airplane, and he was hoping that takeoff roll would take it off. It never did. And we've seen with some of these accidents the fact that and it's evolved because it used to be, like you were just talking about, a captain decision. But it, it has evolved now to be a joint decision between the crew and dispatch with regard to whether or not the aircraft needs to be de-iced or re-de-iced if it had been de-iced once before. But the thing that I, I find curious, because I've been on a number of airplanes and fortunately, I, you know, when I worked for the board and you worked for the board, we had the privilege of being able to ride jump seat. So I rode jump seat all the time in the performance of doing NTSB stuff. And I remember a lot of times in the winter, they would de-ice the airplane and 727, the flight engineer would go back and just go to the overwing exits and look out the window to make sure that the wings were clean. And I've noticed now the crews are not doing that. There's There tends to be a tacit trust that when they pull into the de-icing bay or into the area like here at DIA on, on one of the ramps and they, they de-ice the airplane, it's assumed that the entire airplane has been de-iced and been de-iced properly. And you can actually use this latest example with Frontier, where if somebody had come out of the cockpit before they moved the airplane out of the de-icing pad and just took a look to make sure that it not only was it done, but was it done correctly, they would have looked out there and, and seen the milkshake all over the wing. And I'm just curious why airlines have, have gotten away from that. Well, part of what you're describing is complacency in the part of the flight crews. And it could be that their recent experience with the icing was the facilities where they had a the icing crew that knew what they were doing. And they were in this particular location and assuming that the ice, that same kind of expertise existed in that facility, which is something you shouldn't do. And it does happen once in a while. It does happen that that the, the crew doesn't know what they're doing for whatever reason, but the, the flight crew should always be checking it. But sometimes the flight crew is the problem too. I'm thinking back in my career, I can right now remember twice where I parked a motor vehicle behind the airplane so that the airplane couldn't leave because the captain said, I'm getting out of here. We don't need the icing. And I had, I had put my hand on the wing and there was no question that this stuff was, was stuck to the wing. And I said, you're not going anywhere. And he said, get off my airplane. I'm going. I said, well, you got to run over the truck that I just parked in front of it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's when aviation was, was real aviation. I don't understand how the Wright brothers took that, John. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, it's, it, it is. And, again, it is all about crew education. And, you know, we we think about that kind of stuff. And I think we talked about it briefly on one of our past shows. I'm going to bring it up again. And that was, I was traveling with one of the friends of our show, Jason Lukasik. We were heading off to do some work and we were on an Embraer, a relatively new one, actually three months old. And Jason was sitting in the overwing exit seats and he had a passenger next to him. They're looking out the window and they saw 
what appeared to be a crack in the wing skin right near the spoiler panel. And as they were flying, I mean, of course, you know, they saw it, but it was uh, well after they were in flight, they saw it. But every time the spoiler panel came up, that wing would open and close. So they knew it wasn't a shadow or some dirt or anything else. So they uh, they talked to uh, the flight attendant and relayed the message about the fact that there was a, a crack in that wing skin. And Jason being a certified mechanic and a, and a mechanic with inspection authorization is the best guy to know that there's a problem out there. And he ended up talking to the first officer and the first officer, young guy, blew him off and said, ah, that's just the shadow. This airplane is only three months old. You know, it's not a problem. Well, Jason knew it was a problem and wasn't satisfied with the uh, response he got and took it to the captain and said, listen, this is what I do for a living. Here are my credentials. And I'm telling you, you probably should have maintenance go out and take a look at that because it is a crack in the doubler skin right around that spoiler panel. So I don't care that the aircraft is new. The fact is, is things can break. Things can, you know, uh, distort. You can have problems. What I was really concerned about, though, was the attitude of this young first officer to blow off a guy like Jason and even this passenger who is pretty savvy showed some concern that, you know, ah, don't worry. It was just a shadow. Dude, listen to me. It wasn't a shadow. And you should at least have someone with a higher level of expertise than you go look at it. If it's nothing, great. Yeah, you know, his complacency with the first officer, I mean, he's brand new. He shouldn't have the level of complacency. And I know that they get a lot of complaints, and most of which don't amount to anything from passengers all the time. But that doesn't mean you ignore them. You never know where good information is going to come from. And by assuming it's not good information, it could turn into a real disaster. And the, the stress that comes around flight spoilers or flight controls on the associated piece of the wing is severe. I mean, I, I was just earlier today watching a video on aerodynamics. And they were explaining the load on the wing of a large airplane when you move the flight controls, when you move the elevators left to right. And it actually has a bending moment on the wing, depending on how much you deflect them. Now, most of the time in flight, you're only moving very little. But there are occasions in flight where those flight controls move a lot more. And that, that actually bends the wing. And it's by design. Everybody that has been flying on airplanes sees the wings of airplanes as on takeoff, they bend up in the air as it picks up the load on the airplane. There's a, a huge amount of flexibility built into airliner wings. But to be complacent like that and disregard the stress in those areas, is, it's, I hope the captain brought maintenance out. Yeah, I was going to follow up. I don't want to give away the airline, but I have all the information and I meant to follow up to see if, in fact, what was done and whether or not they took that airplane out of service. It was nothing. I mean, it was significant. It was six inches or greater. We'll post a picture that Jason took that he sent me. We'll post that picture on our website so you can actually see the crack that we're talking about in the top of this wing. But, you know, it is it is one of those things. And, and speaking of cracks, of course, the NTSB has come out with an update 
on the triple seven that had a fan blade that not only cracked but separated and during the course of separating made a mess of a pratt and whitney 4000 engine and started shedding parts presume primarily uh, cowling parts over certain areas of denver and surrounding communities on their way back to uh, to the airport and so they came out with the update today john and in you know typical ntsb fashion they give you the the who the what the where the why to an extent the why and they talk about their their launch procedures and who's the party and and all that kind of stuff and they went through a bunch of basic information that's relatively obvious but they did get into some descriptive information about the failure that they've examined in the blades themselves that did fail and they gave a little bit of uh, a discussion about the fire that seemed to be the predominant visual in a lot of the passenger shot videos that were on the aircraft and the fact that that fire continued to burn even after the crew had discharged the fire extinguishing system. And we've talked a a little bit about it on a previous show, the importance of the cowling with regard to, to firefighting on board, but they glossed over it again. All they did was say that the, uh, that the fuel valve that we talked about, the shutoff valve in the wing spar, did in fact operate as as intended, and it shut the fuel off to the engine. But it, they didn't talk about what other evidence they found to to say what kept that fire going. And I know that there's a lot of things in here that are in your wheelhouse with regard to the examination of the blades and things that we talked about and, and some of the areas you brought up, especially around thrust reversers. So give me your take on what you read in the NTSB update. We'll go right to the fire. There's two sources of potential fire-causing material that come from the airplane and go to the engine. Fuel is one. It's the most obvious one. And because of its fuel, there's a shutoff valve located up on, usually up on around the spar of the airplane, of the wing, that'll turn fuel off to the engine. And this, that's the one that they're referencing right here, is that the fuel flow to the engine was, in fact, shut off by that valve. Well, there's another valve that closes off hydraulic fluid to the engine. Hydraulic fluid also burns, and they didn't reference it. I actually have heard that that valve never did close. Yeah, we uh, we got that from uh, some inside stuff early on. We were trying to verify that before we came on the air, but that is one of the major points that I was hoping to see in this update. Sorry to cut you off. Keep going. Yep. So there was also a bit of a supply of hydraulic fluid and oil. Oil will also burn too. On the engine, there's a fuel oil heat exchanger. And that heat exchanger provides two functions. A, it heats up the fuel because the fuel's coming out of the wing. This is a triple seven, so it can operate up in an environment where you would have minus 75 degrees is not entirely uncommon at that altitude. On the wing, and the fuel is in the wing, 
So the fuel, after a little bit, is going to reach whatever the outside temperature is. So it's very cold. Cold fuel doesn't ignite very well. So what they've, what they've learned over the years is to run it through a fuel oil exchanger. And it's nothing but a radiator, just like the radiator in your car. That's water or antifreeze on one side and ambient air on the other. And when you're moving, it transfers the heat from the, the fluid to the, to the ambient air, and the fluid cools down and it runs around your engine for another cycle. Well, on the airplane engine, the uh, hot oil in the engine also needs to be cooled down, and the fuel in the wing needs to be heated up. So they run it through essentially a radiator, and there's a heat transfer that's beneficial to both fluids. In order to make that work, there has to be a quantity of, of both of those oil and fuel in this unit, and it's located on the engine, and it may have been the source for, for the combustible liquids that we saw burning. And also, there's a hydraulic pump on the engine, so it's, it's got uh, lines coming into it full of hydraulic fluid, which is supposed to shut off on the airplane side when the crew energizes what we call the fire handle, which is in the cockpit. And in fact, there's some, some pictures of it, and we'll post those online as well. So if that hydraulic shutoff valve didn't shut off, then there's the source of, of the fire. The fire burned for quite a while, so I'm surprised that uh, they didn't reference any of that. You know how they uh, they withhold information off routinely, so that's probably waiting to, for them to confirm what they saw. I mean, they could say that the, the valve was found in the open position, and then that would lead to more speculation on the part of everybody. So they're probably waiting till they run the run electrical tests and the, and so on before they update that. But it was definitely a big, very concerning fire on that engine, which will probably lead to some changes in how how what they do it. The very first, the very minimum, it's going to lead to if in fact that valve didn't close and it didn't, whatever reason caused it not to close, there will be a fleet-wide, every 777 campaign to go in and check those valves to make sure they work. And that may be in the process right now. So it's it's a little disconcerting that they didn't talk about that here. They could have said that it was a work in progress, but instead of just ignoring it. But anyway, the other half of this report talks about the blades. And two blades were damaged. One left the airplane and caused damage to the second blade. And also, it just wiped out a lot of the front section of the, of the engine, as well as the cowling leaving the airplane. Now, most people that, that I know, and I've been looking at the certification requirements for the cowl, and I went back and looked at the videos that are available, there's more than one on, on YouTube, that show the containment ring when they test the engine and the blade comes flying off. And when it this blade came off, it in fact did hit the containment ring, substantially deformed the containment ring, but it stopped that energy, which is huge. And somebody actually did the math on it. It was, I think, six joules, which is, you know, like one terabyte. It's huge. But anyway, not getting into all that math. When that happens, 
the whole front of that engine will twist. It really distorts in a major way. And that distortion clearly broke the cowling on this airplane. So that's how severe it was. It bent the nose in, in real simple terms. It bent the nose of that front, en of front of that engine enough to break all the mounts off that cowling because that cowling is mounted to the engine way up front. But it's also broken further back. And I've been told by people that from uh, GE that do these tests on the GE engines that th at times they actually break the engine in half from the force. That force is so, so severe that it'll actually break the engine in half. Now, the engine is designed to come apart in the middle. So you got the front section called the fan section, and then the compressor section, and then the back, the hot section, and the, all the turbine blades in the back. But that's the natural spot for the engine to come apart, and that's where they often see the engine, because of these fan blades, actually break. It doesn't break in two and separate, but it actually breaks all the mounts and all the, the attach points at that point. And that's probably what happened here. In doing so, it's now moving the structure of the cowling in the middle, which is attached to the pylon, and that's not going to move. So now you, you're, you're going to break the structure. And then you've got this 250-mile-an-hour air force on, acting on everything. Once it gets underneath that cowling, it's going to peel it off. And away it goes. And I remember during our initial discussions, um, we were looking at the inlet ring that had fallen in the front yard of a guy, and we saw that there was a slice through it. And we we just presumed that the blade may have come off, ricocheted off the containment ring, and cut through that inlet ring to you know at least get it unzipped and and coming off the airplane. But with the distortion that you're talking about have deformed that inlet ring enough to cause it to rip like that? Or was it helped by a blade? Nobody has said anything about that yet. I've asked that question to a couple of uh, certification engineers that I know that work for the manufacturer in this case, and they, they have never seen that. Of course, when you do the, the, the fan blade requirement for the FAA, there's no cowling on the airplane. So this, there's no requirement either for the cowling to be on. So they're not testing them together. But one other piece that, that I have thought of, and I haven't heard anybody say anything yet, we had all this talk about the blade that broke and that it was contained. But where did the other piece go? The half a blade that broke. Nobody's, nobody has said anything about that. Maybe that's the piece that went forward and cut it. But certainly that ring and the Folks, if you look at our previous podcast, it's pretty clear that that looks like a pretty straight cut. So I guess we'll have to be, uh, that'll have to be continued till we hear what they have to say. Have you heard anything? And of course, they're talking about how they found these cracks. You know, we talked about it. You, you really emphasized it early on with the fatigue cracks originating from inside the blade and propagating out. And of course, the board was uh, has confirmed that in this update that they're finding the cracks on the inside of the blade in the hollow structure. And these fatigue cracks, uh, there's multiple fatigue cracks. And now they're still in, it's a work in progress to try and determine the origin of those cracks. Have you heard anything with regard to not only this cracking problem, 
but what what's going to happen going forward and and what are they going to do are they going to are they going to change an inspection cycle again john or are they going to just put a life limit on these blades well what what i'm hearing is this all right first let's go over the facts all right so this blade has been around for a while it's gone through inspections in 2014 and 2016 and then again in 2018 so it's it's been through different inspections now admittedly the 2014 and 2016 inspections were under the old system. It, we know it's not effective now. The 2018 inspection was done because we had the blade failure in 2018. And since that 2018 inspection, this has 2,979 cycles on it. The inspection frequency was 6,500 cycles. So it's not even half the time, half the number of cycles when it failed. So that's what prompted the FAA to drop the, the inspection. Right now, going forward, they have to be inspected every 1,000 cycles. That's 1,000 takeoff and landing. God, that's That in and of itself is manpower and monetary intensive a lot of money and you have to spend send the blades presently send them back to Pratt and Whitney now separately Pratt and Whitney has been working fully I guess I would say flat out to an enhance their inspection method because these blades are breaking from the inside out and is reinforced several places along the length of the, the blade it's rather complicated it's not a one, two, three, stick the blade down, look at it, and walk away, whether it's good or bad. It's rather complicated. And it, the machinery is, is expensive and complicated, the process, but also the interpretation that the mechanics at, at Pratt & Whitney have to use to determine whether or not the blade is good or not is also not such an easy process to accomplish. So there's, there's a lot of interpretation in it, and when you have interpretations, you can make mistakes. So they're working through all that. Now, the NTSB has not destroyed the blade stub that they have, and they've just been working with it on its existing conditions. What will probably happen here in the very near future is they're going to start to destroy that what's left of that blade. They're going to go down lower and see where other indications of cracks exist or just what's just what they can identify in the, the remaining 8 or 10 inches of blade that they have to see if there's anything else in there. So the, the work is rather detailed, involving some rather cutting-edge inspection methods. You know, it's not a simple X-ray that they do. And they're going to put this stuff and have put it under the scanning electron microscope to see these real minute little cracks and how they propagate. Are there more than one crack that comes together suddenly to make one bigger crack? They're going to be looking at all of that to determine just what the failure mechanism was that put these cracks in this location and allowed them to progress to the point where the blade failed. So it's, uh, it's going to be quite interesting to see how they came up. I used to love going down to the laboratory when they were doing inspections on metallurgy and and looking through the scanning electron microscope. Low speed ailerons, normal and normal. Rudder travel pitch field. Nine. Nav exterior lights. Servo control. Nine. Engine start panel. Crank it aboard. Fire handles. Hello. Seat belt no smoke. Nine.
That is the forensic part of our job, and, and that's getting down into the minute detail that does take time. People, you know, of course, you know, we've got a, an instantaneous society where everybody wants an answer, but it does take time. And there is an art and a science to what we do in all aspects of acts investigation, but especially when it comes to metallurgy like this. Now, the question I've been getting, John, and I'm sure you've been getting it, I was just on an airplane, and of course, even with a mask on, a couple of people kind of recognized who I was, and one guy go, hey, you're the crash guy. It's like, oh my God, don't say that that loud. <laughs> but the question they asked me was, is it safe to fly on a 777 uh, because of this engine problem? And, you know, you don't have all day to explain it to them. And you try to give them the, the short version of what we just talked about and say, yeah, because one, it could have been a tragic event. It was handled very well by the crew. They did everything they needed to do. The airplane was still capable of flying. Is there a flaw? Possibly. That's what the whole investigative process is, is there for. And, and what the intent of that process is, is to try and determine, of course, what the problem is and how do we mitigate or eliminate it from happening in the future. But it shouldn't inhibit people, I think, from flying on aircraft. Again, I'm not worried about the 737 MAX. I can't wait to get it into the cycle of my travel. Why? Because I got all the confidence in the world in it and all the guys that I know that fly it love it and they're looking forward to getting back on the, on the airplane. So I think people should have a high level of confidence that behind the scenes, there's a lot of work going on to enhance aviation safety. And this is not an airframe problem. That's the other thing that I've been trying to educate people on. And I know you have too, John. This is not a Boeing problem. The cowling might be a bit of an issue since it's an airframe part, but this is an engine problem, pure and simple, Brat and Whitney, period. And I know that there might be a little bit of a riff because, you know, one is pointing the finger at the other and things like that. It's not worth pointing fingers at. It's worth working together to try and solve what appears to be, and I won't call it a systemic issue. But it's more than a coincidence, given the fact that we've had three triple sevens over a three year period have the same problem or a similar failure. So but again, there's a lot of people working hard to come up with the solution so that going forward, this doesn't happen again. So I think people should have confidence in the system. They should have confidence in the maintenance, of course, the manufacturers and the FAA, since they are responsible for not only the oversight, but of course, the certification. And you and I, we beat up on the FAA a bit. And of course, 737 MAX issues sure didn't help them at all. But when it comes to engines, I think that going forward, that uh, there should be a confidence in our regulatory system, because I'll tell you, you and I have traveled around the world. We've dealt with a lot of regulatory authorities around the world. And I'd rather have the FAA certifying something that's called an aircraft part than a lot of regulatory authorities you and I have experienced. Without a doubt, without a doubt. Well, it's, that's interesting, too, because one of the things that the FAA is doing now and with the NTSB is, you know, when you do these inspections and you do all this stuff, the, the paperwork never goes away, ever. 
until the airplane becomes comes beer cans, the records go with the airplane. So they actually have the records from the 2014, 2016, and 2018 inspections of this blade. And now they're going back and looking at that data from those inspections to see if it was missed or if something happened in the meantime. So that's going to be an interesting endeavor that they undertake there because it will be able to give us some satisfaction to whether or not the knowledge that the blade was okay up until the last 2,000 cycles, 2,900 cycles, or was it something that was building over a longer period of time that will require maybe even additional inspections. So there's a lot of work left to be done. It, it, uh, it, uh, it's clearly, the NTSB is clearly on their A game so far, even though maybe they're not so forthcoming with the material that they, they're seeing or t uh, testing. But uh, I think they're on their A game. I think that, that uh, we'll get to the bottom of this blade. And I'd like to remind everybody that in the world, there's only 150 airplanes with these, roughly, with these engines on it. And in the U.S., there's only there was only 24 airplanes flying with this particular model engine on it. And of course, those airplanes are not flying right now. And since there many of them are the oldest triple sevens in the fleet, 25 years old roughly, they probably won't come back. There's a high likelihood that they may uh, retire that whole fleet out. Since right now we've got more airplanes than we need. And it's not because of the airplane, John. It's, you know, I mean, it's the expense. You got to do a cost-benefit analysis, taking the airplane out of service, having to pull those blades, having to ship them to Pratt. It's all that downtime. And it's not the airframe. It's the operation of the aircraft and, and the lack thereof. And like you said, I mean, United has been able to supplement the airplanes that are down for this inspection they've plug and played other airplanes in to pick up those uh, those routes and that kind of stuff. So, like you said, it may be an opportune time to retire these old airplanes. We saw the retirement of a lot of aircraft at the beginning of COVID, soon as the airlines started parking airplanes because of passenger travel being down. It gave them an opportunity to uh, accelerate their retirement schedule on some of their older aircraft. We saw that uh, in a big way with Delta, and uh, they were very proud of that and, and, you know, made it well known. So, you know, not that this there's a problem with the airplane. It's an opportunity for the airlines now to, again, you know, take a, take a step back, streamline the operation, get rid of their older aircraft, get some new aircraft into the fleet. And it's obvious that the airlines are putting brand new airplanes in. I saw that there were two large orders for the 737 MAX. So it's obvious that the airlines have confidence in the airplane and they've put in orders to put in new generation aircraft to replace now these older airplanes. So don't think that, oh, this is an old airplane and, and that kind of stuff. It is an old airplane but it's been a reliable airplane. And oh, by the way, you still see DC-8s and 707s flying. And oh, by the way, the military is still using a B-52. John, I mean, you're as old as dirt almost. When was that B-52 put into service? The middle, 19, <laughs> the middle 1950s. <laughs> so, and we're still flying it. 
The military still has confidence in it. They're using the 707. The KC-135 is what it's designated as. They've re-engined that airplane. They've recycled it, rebirthed it, if you will. They're talking about doing the same thing with DC-8s. They've done an engine upgrade over the years with it. So these airframes are built like tanks. And they will last. It's just that for, you know, convenience and economy, the airlines now have an opportunity to uh, to streamline their operation and put in more economic aircraft than what is currently in their fleet. Yeah, more, the newer technology. I want to go back to it. You mentioned the, the MAX. I have flown the MAX. I've talked to the crew members, both the pilots and, the, and flight attendants. And the question I asked, I start the conversation with the flight attendants is, I asked them, what kind of comments are you getting from your passengers? Because the airline that I flew, it's right front and center. When you walk right in the door, it said what kind of airplane it was. And they're given, they, they've announced they were giving people the opportunity to get off the airplane. Nobody got off the airplane. The flight attendants on the flights that I that I took said they haven't even had any comments from the passengers with it. So the people have not focused in on, on that piece. The pilots, I asked the pilots, they, they said, we loved the airplane before. We still love the airplane. It's a great airplane to fly. And I, I talked to them briefly about the training that they had, computer-based training. And the first officer told me, he said, it was all that training was nothing that we haven't had already. To us, it was just uh, rehashing what we already were taught. And the captain nodded his head with that. He didn't actually say anything, but he nodded his head. Yeah, well, we we talk about these things. We try to educate folks on on these issues. and And that's why, again... While, yes, there are always chinks in the armor, there are always these little dips that become a storyline for a variety of different reasons, not only here but around the world. I think the flying public, because I have confidence in the airlines, I'm on an airline airplane every week. And, of course, because United is seems to be my personal chauffeur by air, if you will, because I'm sitting on one of their airplanes all the time. I have all the confidence in the world. I got a lot of friends of mine that fly for United. We've had very candid conversations, whether it's with training, airplanes, maintenance, or whatever. And they are all very confident in the system. And I think the flying public should have that confidence as well in the system that we have here in the United States. Has Congress and and the news media and some of the recent events caused us to take an in-depth look? Absolutely, but it's like anything else. The car manufacturers have gone through that when when we had gasoline tanks exploding and rear-end collisions and tires coming apart on Ford Explorers and everything else. That's just the way it is with a machine. But you got to have confidence in the system. And and you and I are working on a safety evaluation of an operator, a helicopter operator. And again, they haven't had any major event that's killed anybody or seriously injured anybody, but they're being proactive. They want us to find those precursors. And that's the way the system works. And again, people should have confidence in it. I know I have confidence to 
were you sitting uh, on that max with uh, your rubber underwear on, John? I was sleeping probably within 20 minutes of the takeoff. <laughs> so I guess you had confidence in the airplane and the crew. So, well, it's been a great show. And I think that we tried to bring a little bit of updated information. We will keep you, the audience, updated as we uh, we find out more information about Pratt & Whitney 4000 series engines and what the, the NTSB and the FAA and crew are doing with this particular engine investigation. And then, of course, we hope that uh, you learn a little bit about the icing. And again, it's obvious from our emails, John, that we have some very savvy aviation enthusiasts. They aren't necessarily pilots, but they love aviation. They love the safety part of it, the stuff that we talk about. And again, I encourage you, if there's something that is of concern, you don't have to make a spectacle about it, but you should call call it to the attention of the flight attendant. Or if you have an opportunity, call it to the attention of the crew and just say, hey, you know, I don't know if that's normal or not. And let someone with a high level of expertise explain it examine it and explain it and say, yeah, that's not a problem. Or, you know what, that's a good idea. We'll have somebody take a look at it just to make sure that uh, the confidence is still real high. So I think it's been a great show. I want to thank uh, our sponsors, PAMA and Avemco Insurance. Yes. And again, if you are needing to renew your policy or if you need a, a, a brand new policy, give them a call at 888-241- 7891 or on the web at com. whether you have a you want to be a renter and have a policy if you're the owner of policy they have all kinds of policies to cover the owners the renters CFIs flying clubs and even life insurance so if you have a need for insurance please give Avemco a call mention flight safety detectives you'll get a discount which in these times, it's very important. You can always get a hold of John or I through our email at flightsafetydetectives with an S at gmail.com. We love hearing the feedback. We love fielding the questions. I noticed uh, yesterday that we've received a couple of suggestions for shows. So John and I will uh, start dissecting that email to look at uh, how we can incorporate the suggestions into the show. We've gotten some great feedback on on a number of things that we've talked about. People have been very appreciative of the fact that we have talked about not only current issues, but some of the things that are in the shadows. They're the they're in the they're hiding in the, the backstories in the shadows. So we appreciate your feedback on that. We will try to keep these things coming. And of course, we will be dissecting accidents, which we love to do because there's a lot of messaging in these accidents that don't necessarily make it into a formal report. So with that being said, John, I will, as I always do, leave you with the last words. Okay, folks, we still have concerns over the virus. I've got my my uh, second shot. I'm enjoying uh, a little bit of freedom, but I still mask up. Please, please, everybody out there, Pay attention to the protocols. Let's get herd immunity going. I read uh, that we got like 6% of the population now. It's starting to pick up because there's been more and more vaccine available. It'll make all the difference in the world. So let's not let another outbreak 
set us back. Please wear your mask, wash your hands, pay attention to the protocols. And if you're going flying, especially if you haven't flown in a while, please pay attention. Do a good pre-flight. We've been, every week I talk about pre-flights because I see so many bad ones. Please do a very detailed pre-flight. Pay attention to what you're doing. And if you haven't flown for a whole year, because that's how long we've been stuck with this virus, fly with somebody who has been flying, an instructor or somebody else at the airfield we are. Please, please fly safely. We want you back next show. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at pama.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.